He has not failed us, amen? And he will not fail us, amen? You have your Bibles. Would you turn with me to Judges chapter 2? Judges chapter 2. Judges is the seventh book of your Bible. The seventh book of your Bible. So start at the front and go to the right. You should get there pretty quickly. We're starting a new book this morning together. We're going to spend two weeks in the passage that we're going to be studying today, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Uh, We're going to focus primarily today, though, on verses 11 through 13, and then we're going to come back next week, and we're going to see the rest. All right, Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and the Word of God says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. Who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come this morning as believers of Jesus Christ. We believe in him. We believe that he walked on this earth. We believe that he lived perfectly. We believe that he is fully God and fully man. That he was sent by you, that he voluntarily took upon himself our iniquities, that he voluntarily laid himself willingly on the cross as a servant humbled. We believe that he died the death that we were supposed to die. Oh, but Lord, we believe that you raised him from the dead. We are convinced of it, utterly convinced. And Lord, being convinced, we are here this morning to commit our lives again, renew our commitment to him, to follow him all the days of our life with all of the energy that we can muster, with all of the passion that is set within us. And so, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and equip us for the task, that he would equip us through your word, that he would equip us by softening our hearts, that he would equip us by convicting us of sin, by, that he would equip us by drawing us freshly into the rest and abiding offer that Christ has made to us, that our burden of this world might be lifted and that his yoke might be placed upon us. Oh Lord, we come. We come because we believe and we come asking you not to leave us the same as we are right now. We ask these things in the name of the risen and true Christ. Amen. You may be seated this morning. 
So Megan and I started, I think every time I start a sermon, it just occurred to me, you probably get a little bit nervous when I start with your name at the beginning of a sermon. Uh, I try not to do it too much, but you know, it happens. So Megan and I, we started dating in 2002. All right, so for those of you that aren't super quick with math, that was 19 years ago. It was a minute, okay? And, uh, you know, we were in high school, and you know how high school relationships kind of go. It was kind of more us just kind of going to the movies every now and then, every other weekend kind of thing. And then over time, that grew and that progressed. And, and, and I can remember, you know, like when you've been in a relationship for a long time and you've watched TV and you've hung out with people, you, you come to realize that at some point you have to express your love for your high school flame, right? And I can remember us doing that, like awkwardly, uncomfortably, or at least for me, maybe she wasn't, but I was nervous, awkward, uncomfortable, and just kind of saying, you know, I love you, you know? And, and of course, you know, like in high school, it, it got to where we would even say that every time that we were going to hang up the phone or that we were uh, leaving each other, but, but you know, I, I never really s- said that when my boys were around, you know what I'm saying? I didn't say that when my parents were around. It was, it was something that I, I kind of said, but I kind of kept it on, on the down low, you know. And, and, and thinking back, like, you kind of wonder, like, did we mean it? Did we not mean it? Did we kind of mean it? Whether we meant it or not way back then, we certainly didn't understand it. We certainly didn't understand it. That, that what you come to realize over the course of your life is that the integrity and character and nature of love is revealed over time. It's revealed over time. It's revealed through suffering together. It's revealed through celebrating together. It's revealed through going through stuff together that that you can express what you're feeling. But if it's more than an infatuation, if it's it's more than romantic desire, if it's more than mere, mere passion and energy in the moment, if it's more than that, if it's actually love, well, you can't know that for some time. But I can tell you this. Now, having known this woman for more of my life than what I, than having not known her, for having been in a relationship with her for 19 years, 14 of those years married, having purchased six houses, had three kids, four surgeries, and served in three churches together, you know what I know? I know what love is. I know what love is. I know that love is about perseverance and endurance. I know that love is commitment and resolve. I know that love isn't up and down, here today and gone tomorrow. I know that love isn't about what I'm feeling in any particular moment. That that love is, is being in it together for the long haul. And that the character and nature of love, if it is true and genuine love, is revealed even more clearly as time passes on. And you know the scriptures teach us that the same principle applies in terms of our love for Christ. In terms, terms of our faith in Christ. Our belief in Christ. In fact, if you think through a lot of the parables that Jesus taught, this was really one of the driving points behind what Jesus was getting to. I have in my mind, particularly this morning, the parable of the sower. You kind of remember how it goes. You have the sower, which is the father, right? He's going and he's, he's sowing the seed and he's, the, the seed of the gospel is going on and it, and it begins to portray different soils. 
that it falls upon. It says that, that some of the seed, it falls on uh, the soil of the path. And the path is, is packed down and is rock hard. And so the soil is not able to penetrate. The, hardness, or the seed is not able to penetrate the hardness of the soil. And so there is no love. There is no fruit. Nothing springs up from that. But there are others that the seed falls on rocky soil. And, and the soil is there, it's, it's, it's shallow because it's on top of a bed of rock, but the seed goes down into that shallow soil and it sprouts up for a very brief time, right? It sprouts, it sprouts up, but, but it's only for a moment. And it looks, though, as though it's, it's healthy. In other words, it looks like it's true love. It looks like it's real. It looks like the nature of what it would be like if you were totally given over to Christ. And it springs up, but just as soon as it springs up, it quickly fades away. Over time, in other words, the character of that commitment to Christ is proven to be less than sincere. It is proven to be less than genuine. He says there is another kind of soil, and it is the thorny soil, that it, it goes and, and it goes into the soil and it begins to spring out and it may last for a while, but it's surrounded by thorns and over time the thorns close in on what appears to be a truly fruit-bearing person, a fruit-bearing heart, and as the thorns close in over time it chokes out what was there. It chokes out any semblance of life and fruitfulness. In other words, over a longer period of time, after a season has passed, that person wasn't able to sustain the fruit that they were bearing that gave the appearance that they loved Christ because they didn't actually love Christ. It was proven to not be genuine. He says, but there is a fourth kind of soil. There is a kind of soil that it goes and it presses and it springs up and it comes and it reproduces year after year. A harvest of many types, a harvest that is able to go sometimes 30-fold, sometimes 60-fold, even 100-fold. It is able to reproduce. In other words, over time it is proven that they weren't responding in emotion and they weren't faking with outward behavioral, external love for Christ, that inside of them, abiding within them, pressing deeply into the person that they are, they were totally resolved and committed to follow after Jesus all of their lives with all of their energy. And that, that is what Jesus says is the picture of true discipleship. Now this is what's in our minds or what should be in our minds as we come to Judges chapter 2. I want you to think back to where we left off at the end of Joshua chapter 24 because Judges chapter 2 intends for us to pick up right where Joshua left off. Remember we were at 24 and they're renewing the covenant there at Shechem and Joshua says as for me and my house we're going to serve the Lord. Now you have to decide. If you're going to serve the gods of the Egyptians, go and serve them. If you're going to serve the gods of the Amorites, go and serve them. But if you are going to serve the Lord, you must decide this day. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they all say what? The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua closes with this renewal of the covenant, and you're, you're thinking, man, we're, we're trending in the right direction. We're headed on this upward trajectory. And then you turn over to Judges as they've entered into the promised land. And when you get to chapter 2, the generation that had made this commitment, the generation that had went in and taken the promised land, and Joshua and Joshua himself have passed away, and their children have ascended. And the question is, did they mean what they said in chapter 24? 
Were they actually going to commit to follow the Lord in the promised land? Would they enjoy the fullness of a relationship that had been offered to them through Yahweh? Had they, will they enjoy the fullness of the covenant protection and the covenant provision and the covenant blessing? Did they mean what they said? And so chapter 2 verse 11 is meant to be the answer to what they said at the end of Joshua chapter 24. Chapter 11 says this, the first thing that we read about them, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods. In in other words, what we're seeing here is that time did tell. Time did show the nature of their love. Time did show the nature of their commitment. And over time, what was revealed is that Joshua 24 wasn't the heart of the people. Joshua 24 was not the trajectory that they were headed on. In fact, within one generation, they would compromise. The the people who so boldly were there to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was their very house that had forsaken the Lord himself. And so I wonder what time is telling about our fate. I wonder what time is telling about the commitments that you even made a couple of weeks ago as you buried your idols here at the altar as the Israelites were called to bury their idols there at Shechem. What is it revealing about the nature of your heart and the nature of your commitment to Christ? In Joshua or in Judges chapter 2, what we're having here is really an overview of the whole of the book. It's establishing a pattern here in Judges chapter 24 that we're going to see over the whole of the judges, the whole of Judges, all the way through chapter 21. In fact, this sentence here, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, will occur 12 times in the in the first. 13 chapters of Judges alone as people after people do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, showing that their hearts are intent and bent toward sin, intent and bent toward idolatry. And time and again, God will come in and he will raise up a judge in, uh, in his plan to redeem and to deliver his people. And so what we see in Judges is we see what it is that God has to overcome for us. What God has to overcome for us that we might be right with him, that we might walk in his ways, that we might know the joy and the freedom and and the hope that comes from being in an intimate and and significant, committed relationship with God. In other words, what we're going to see here in a minute, what it means to be in a monogamous relationship with God and with God alone. And so there's three points, and if you look at your notes, there are three points there, but today we're just going to cover the first. We're going to break this into two parts. And so what I want you to do is I want you to have that, fill in that first blank. We're going to take some other notes along the way, but put that in your Bible and bring it back next week, and we're going to finish it next week. So the first thing that I want you to see along this path that God has to overcome, this pattern in our lives that God has to overcome for our good, is that we chase normal. We chase normal. So verse 11 tells us that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what verses 12 and 13 begin to frame up for us is exactly the nature of the evil that they did. Notice what they said. He bookends it in 12 and 13 with the same phrase. They abandoned the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. They turned away from the Lord. That they had committed themselves that they were going to follow the Lord forever. They had committed themselves that they were going to be his people. And he was going to be their God. And they were all in the whole way, 100% to the very end. 
And the very first thing that we read is that they abandoned the Lord. Well, in between those two bookends, he's really helping us to understand what he means by their abandonment. What does it mean that they abandoned the Lord? Does that mean that they took all ideas of the Lord and all the revelations of the Lord and all the, the stories of their forefathers and, and put those aside and said that, that they did not love God and they did not believe that God was true and they did not believe that he was the God of gods? No, that's not what it meant at all. Look at what it says there. Verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. All right, so, so there, there's some imagery. We're going to draw this out a little bit more next week. But he's, he's driving home the character of who their God has been. Their God is the God that delivered them from Egypt. Their God is the one who entered into a covenant. That's what, that's what we're seeing here, right? The God of their fathers. This is the God of the promise who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Th- th- this was the God that had entered into a relationship and had called for them on Sinai to commit to him and to him only. The God who had said, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people and you shall have no other gods apart from me. And so what is drawing out of them is that their desire wasn't so much to get rid of their God as it was that they would have uh, additional gods with him. That this idea of an abandonment for Israel was not that it was an either-or proposition. Either they're going to serve the Lord or they're going to serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. In their minds, it was a both-and. It was, I'm going to have my cake and I'm going to eat it too. I'm going to have Yahweh and I'm going to have the Baals and I'm going to have the Ashtaroth, right? And, and Baals and Ashtaroth, they're plural there, but they're actually talking about one God that manifests himself in multiple different ways. So, so they're saying, I'm going to commit to the God of, of fertility, Ashtaroth. I'm going to commit myself to the God of, of agriculture and storms, the God of Baal. I'm going to have all of these things so that now I can have the fullness of prosperity that has been offered to me. Now, why does this matter? Why does the Lord uh, equal uh, count this as being abandonment? Why does it matter to him? Okay, so you have to understand that in the context of, of antiquity, the way that the ancient peoples understood their relationship with their gods is they all understood them as being polytheistic. What we have in Exodus chapter 20, the best that we can tell, and basically all historians are in agreement on this, that what we have in Exodus chapter 20 is the first known account in human history in which a people are called to monotheism. In other words, it's the first time that we have in human history in which the people are called to worship, serve, bow down, and love only one God. So what was normal, what was normal is that you would have a God and that was perhaps your patron God or the God that was most represented or most responsible for your people. But in addition to that patron God, you would have numerous other gods, as many as you likely discovered. And as you would go into other cities, you would find it likely that you would make offerings to these other gods, that they would give you their blessing as well, that you would have their approval. And so you are seeking to appease as many of the gods as you could. So the way Israel likely understands their relationship with Yahweh up until Exodus chapter 20 is they would have likely understood Yahweh not to be a singular God and the only God, but that Yahweh would be their patron God, the God that was most responsible for them, the God that was nearest in relationship to them. 
But in Exodus 20, when God says, you shall have no other gods apart from me, it is a radical call. It is a call that is extraordinary and singular, that is completely unique and peculiar about the Jewish people. It is a call that separated them apart from all the other people groups in all of the world. It is a call that made them strange, odd, weird as they came into new cities, as they would have come into Egypt. And then they come into the land of Canaan. They see all of these other gods, and yet God is saying, no, 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 no. Don't worry about them. Don't, don't appease yourself with them. No, no. No, no, concern yourself with me and with me only. This is the significance of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we read at the beginning of the service, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, that is the, the, the Shema, that, that, uh, that saying that they taught to the, their children early in their life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one Lord. There is one Lord. So how are you to be in relationship with the one Lord? You shall love him with what? With all of your heart. Undivided, right? With all of your soul. Undivided. And with all of your all of your might. All of your heart. All of your soul. All of your might. This is what you have to teach to your children. This is what they're going to be tempted toward. There are going to be all these other gods and all these other places that you go. And they're going to see them and they're going to feel like they have to appease those gods too. And that they need to be devoted to those gods too. And they need to be committed to those gods too. But what you have to teach them, what you have to teach them is that there is one God. The God of gods. The Lord of lords. And you are to love him with all of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your might. Do not divide your affections. Do not divide your attention. Do not divide your, your, your passions and your desires and your devotion and your worship. No, no, no. Don't worship wooden gods. And don't worship what is made out of silver. Bow yourself in service to the one God who is breathing, living, delivering, and providing. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. Still, I don't think it often sinks in with us how radical this call is in the ancient world. But it may sink in better for us when we come to realize that the call of discipleship in the ministry of Jesus is finding this as the pattern of what it means to be a disciple. That the singular focus that you are to have upon the Lord, the abandonment that you are to have of all the other gods and all the other opportunities for prosperity, all the other opportunities for worship, all of the other opportunities for ecstatic experiences and all the, the hoopla and emotional jargon that is encompassed in all of those, all of those other gods, that all, when Christ calls us to be his disciples, he is following the similar pattern pattern, and particularly in Luke, what we find is that it's emphasized as Jesus calls disciples, it says at the end of every single time Jesus calls disciples, and they abandoned all else and followed him. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says this, if you do not forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciples. It talks in places about how there would be some people, and they were, they were emotionally engaged and attached to what Jesus uh, said, and they were astonished and provoked by the way that he taught with authority that was strange and foreign to them. And they would come and they would say, I want to be your disciple. And he would say, well, leave all and come and follow me. And they would say, but I need to go home and bury my dad first. Do you remember what Jesus said? 
Let the dead bury the dead. You forsake all else and come and follow me. What is he calling us to? The call to discipleship is the call to abandon all other gods, all other devotions, all other, effect, all other affections, all other responsibilities until we are solely committed to our resolve and love of Jesus Christ. See, that's radical. That's radical. This is the same pattern that we're seeing way back here in Judges chapter 2. That's why it's so hard for them. If you, if you keep finding yourself like, why can't the Israelites figure it out? Why can't they devote themselves? Why can't they understand that this God that delivered them from Egypt is the, the God that they're supposed to be committed to? And he's obviously manifested his power. He's obviously done all these. Why can't they figure this out? Well, why can't you figure out that Jesus is all that matters? Why can't you give all of your heart and all of your attention and all of your love to Jesus rather than trying to be distracted by all the nonsense of this world? Why is it that you still find yourself living for materialism when Christ has said all of these things will be destroyed by moths and rust? It's because these gods are normal to us. These gods are attractive to us. These gods are desirable to us. That's why. The same for Israel. Notice what he says. It points out at the, at the second part of verse 12, it says, they, were, they went after other gods from, um, I'm sorry, from among the gods of the peoples. From among the gods of the peoples. You know what it's drawing out there? What Israel wanted is Israel wanted what everybody else had. Israel wanted what everybody else had. They wanted, in other words, they saw the gods of the Canaanites and they saw the gods of the Egyptians and they looked and they, they come to this realization, we're different than everybody else, man. Why can't we be like them? Why can't we have what they have? I want you to think about this. Because this is us. This is us. God had called, chosen, and set them apart that they might be special. God had called, chosen, saved, and delivered them that they might be a blessing to all nations, that they might live and exist in a relationship with the living God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the one to whom all these other wooden and silver gods will answer. But they didn't want to be special. They wanted to be normal. Oh, church, church, is that not a rebuke of us? If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you know him and love him and want him and seek in your life to reflect him and to spread the news of his glory, if, if the remarkable supernatural transformation has happened in your life so that the spirit of God now lives in you and you're convicted of your sin and drawn to the glory of Christ, the miraculous has happened. You have been chosen, saved, delivered by the almighty God to be in relationship with him. But how many of us, how many of us, that being true as it is, say, oh Lord, I don't want to be special. I just want to be normal. I don't want to have the fullness of your kingdom. I just want to have what everybody else has. I can remember growing up, if there was one sentence I said to my mom and dad more than any other, it was probably, I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. They, they would be, uh, be encouraging me. Yeah, they probably knew my strengths a bit better than I did. I wanted to be a great athlete, and I am not a great athlete. I'm a pretty terrible athlete, actually. Um, 
as you can probably tell by the numerous injuries, I, I, I'm walking up the steps this morning and I'm falling down. You know what I mean? Like, coordination, probably not my strength. God just didn't decide that he didn't want me to have that. I don't think I personally have the level of humility that it would have taken to be a great athlete. And I think the Lord knew that. Like, I would be that guy wanting to, like, dunk on everybody. Like, one, like, I look over here this morning and I thought somebody was standing in a chair over the corner of my eye. And I look, and it's just one standing on his flat feet because he's, gigantic athlete, right? Like, and I don't have the humility to be like that. And the Lord knew that. And so I think my parents would often try to encourage me to like, like to do ACT prep and to maybe like, I don't know, read a book every now and then. And I would, I, I remember saying to them, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be exceptional. I just want to be normal. I, I'm embarrassed by this. I, I remember actually purposely submarining my grades so that my grades were down in the average category because I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be different than everybody else. I just wanted what they had. I just wanted to blend in. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that stupid? Except I still find that same tendency in me at almost 35 that I had back then at 16. That I want the kind of lives that I see around me. I want the kind of luxuries that I see around me. I want the kind of jobs that I see around me. I want the kind of, of, of leisures that my other people that I know experience. I, I want the kind of families that I see around me. And I'm, I feel myself, and I feel guilty about it sometimes, but I still feel myself being drawn into all of this nonsense. Y'all, that's what Israel's struggling with. That's what Israel's struggling with. Look at what it says about them. Um, sorry, keep jumping around here. Look, look at what else it says. It, it says in there that they, uh, in, in verse 12, it says, who brought them out of the land of it, and they went after. I, I know it's kind of getting a little bit foggy there, but it, it went after. It, that, that phrase actually comes up three times in their passage. Remember what we've talked about Hebrew, how in Hebrew when something comes up multiple times, particularly three times, it's a point of emphasis. It's like putting like three exclamation points at the end of it. So verse 12 here, it says they went after. Verse 19 at the end when we kind of bookended it, our passage this morning, it says went after. And then in the beginning, verse, or in the middle, verse 17 really kind of gets to the heart of what it means that they went after. It says they hoard after. That, that the idea here is a picture that is painted often of Israel in the Old Testament, that can be painted often of the church today. It is the picture of, of an unfaithful bride betraying her faithful husband. It's the picture of, of, a, of, a, of a bride who has all of her husband's affection and all of her husband's attention and all of her husband's devotion and he's providing for her and he's protecting her and he's loving her and he's day in and day out making his presence and affection and passion for her known right there in her midst only for her to go and to whore after every other man that she can come across. This comes out clear if we would have read verse 10. Verse 10 says this, And all that generation, the generation after the generation of, of Joshua, also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for us for Israel. It's hard to see it there in the Hebrew, but the word know there is not talking about knowledge in your mind. It's not talking about being able to pass a multiple choice test about who their God was. They certainly knew about God. 
The concept of know there in verse 10 is a concept of, a, of an intimate, uninhibited, vulnerable, exposed, completely uh, raw knowledge that a, a husband has of his wife and that a wife has of her husband. It's the same word that's used when it says that, that Abraham knew his wife and they conceived a son. It is this kind of knowledge that Israel is without. The, the children of the previous generation, they know about God and they have all the answers about God, but they don't know him. They don't know him. And so what they're looking for is not the monogamous, committed relationship that the Lord has called for. What they want is an open marriage. What they want is they want to be able to have the Lord and they want to be able to have all of the other gods at the very same time. That is, they want God, but they want everything else too. Does that sound like us to you? You see, I think they, underst- they thought about God the same way that we do. I think that we think about God the way that we think about a pie chart. And our, our idea is, is that if we can just give God a slice, as long as God has a slice of our life, then we're okay then we're okay. As long as we give God acknowledgement in our home, as long as we say the blessing when we are going to gather around the table, as long as we go to church at least occasionally, right? As long as God has a slice of our pie, then we are free to do with the rest of that pie whatever we want. So now we can go and all the things of the world, we can begin to populate the rest of our lives with those things. We can begin to divide ourselves up. And so work is a part of that, and, and ball is a part of that, and, um, and, and workouts are a part of that. Um, and, and we could go on and on, right? School is a part of that. We could go with hobbies are a part of that. But so long as God has a corner of our pie, then what we're able to say, what we're able to say is we're able to say, Lord, obviously I love you. Lord, obviously you're the most important thing in my life. Obviously I know you're what matters most. And so, Lord, I have, I have carved out a corner. I've given you a sliver of who I am. Oh, but church, but church, Your life is not a pie to be divided up so that God gets a sliver. Your life is a sacrifice that is to be wholly offered. That, a living sacrifice, is what is holy and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Here's what I think we do. Here's what I think we do. God, I want you, but I only want enough of you so that I can still be normal. I, I want you, I want you to have my life, but I don't want you to have so much of my life that my life becomes weird. I don't want you to have so much of my life that I'm not able to still have what all of my neighbors have and do what all of my neighbors do and my kids aren't able to do what all of their classmates do. I want you to have a corner of my life, but I still want everything else too. But brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, God is not content with a sliver of your life. God is not satisfied with a sliver of your life. He is a glorious God. He is a wonderful God. He is a holy God. He is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. He is supreme, the one to whom all else will answer. And he is a jealous God. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. I wonder, I wonder if, 
by the way we prioritize our time and set our schedules and live our lives and the conversations that we have at the dinner table, I wonder if we are teaching the next generation that they aren't supposed to be special. They're just supposed to be normal. Just supposed to be normal. But God has called you past normal, brothers and sisters. God has called you unto himself that you would forsake all else in this life so that now when I go to work, certainly work still takes part of my schedule. It takes a substantial part of my schedule, but my work is an offering of satisfaction unto the Lord. When I play golf, I can still play golf. Of course I can still play golf, but golf isn't getting a sliver of my devotion. My golf is to the glory of the Lord. When I, my, my marriage, in my marriage, of course my marriage de- deserves focus. Of course my marriage deserves work and attention. But my work, is, my marriage is to be an outpouring of the satisfaction that I have in the Lord. My work and my golf and my marriage and my hobbies and my kids are all sacrifices offered unto the Lord because he gets it all. He gets all that I have to offer. So that means, that means... My priorities are not determined by what my neighbors have or what the school says my kids need to do or what my kids' coaches say that they need to do or what my boss says that I need to do or what my standard of living, my desired standard of living calls me to go and to pick up a side hustle. My my priorities are not determined by any of those things. My priorities are determined by my obedience to the risen Christ. So this morning, this morning I want to ask you, Over time, over time, what fruit is coming to bear in your life? Maybe there has been a time in your life in which you have said, Jesus, you get everything I've got. You get everything I've got. I I recognize that you are the Christ and you are the Savior and I offer you the fullness of my life. But in time, in time, how is that commitment playing out? Do you find in your life the same temptations that Israel here found so that in your life what once sprouted out and began to look as though it was vibrant fruit has begun to wither and die in your life as though it is on rocky, thorny soil to begin with? See, what we're going to discover in living color, very, very vivid picture next week is we're going to see that normal, normal is a form of slavery. And probably a lot of you are tired And you're tired because you've been trying to manage this whole wheel and keep it spinning around day after day and week after week. And what you found out is you just can't make everybody happy and you're worn out. You feel like a slave to your own life. That's the invitation of Jesus. When he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me. You're carrying the burden of this world and you're carrying the yoke of this world. Come to me, I'm going to set you free. Devote yourself in a monogamous, committed relationship to me and to me alone, and you will find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, this morning, church, this morning, wherever you find yourself, there's good news. You can come to him. You can come to him. Come to him this morning and be set free. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. 
You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.